Bitcoin's time is now. It's just becoming clear to the smartest investors in the room that denying Bitcoin is like denying the internet 20 years ago, and it's a mistake. And you're gonna get left in the dust. And uh, I think that's what we're seeing, and uh, to the moon. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom, the Bitcoin mecca of the world. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got a monster interview. I've got Nick Bartier back on the show and we're discussing his upcoming book, Layered Money. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, we're going to kick off today with Casa, the best in Bitcoin security. And as I told you, you know, if we go back six months, my personal Bitcoin security was a bit of a mess. I hadn't really changed anything for a couple of years and I was kind of exposed to my own mistakes. So I reached out to Nick, the CEO, and I said, look, Nick, I need to get this shit together. Can you help me out? So I signed up to become a customer and the team walked me through it. And you know what? It's just so much peace of mind that I am now protected from hackers, my own stupid, idiotic mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and so much more. And Casa, being such a badass company, they do have a product for every Bitcoin out there. So with Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that is only going to cost you $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their three of five multi-sig. Now that is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, and that also comes at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering. That also includes a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. And if you want to find out more, head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, let's talk about sportsbet.io. Have you checked them out yet? Have you seen what they've done? Have you seen that they have put a Bitcoin logo on the front of a Premier League football shirt? Every single week, billions of football fans around the world are seeing the Bitcoin logo. It's on the Southampton shirt and sportsbet.io are absolute badasses for doing that. But why did they do it? Do you know why? It's because they love Bitcoin. And I know this because I went out to Estonia, I met the team, I met the CEO, and they talked to me about how important Bitcoin is for them and how important they see it for the world. And they want to do everything they can to get Bitcoin in front of people. Now, if you are interested in checking out sportsbet.io, then they have every possible market you could be interested in from Premier League sports to US sports. And for new customers, they have a range of promotions available. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions and sportsbet.io is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. Okay, so on to the show today. And this is a real mind bending conversation with Nick Bartier. Look, I'm not always the quickest to pick up on things. And, you know, sometimes I'm a little bit dismissive of some of the bigger Bitcoin ideas. Yes, I believe in it as gold 2.0. Yes, I believe in it as a store of value as a hedge against inflation. But previously, when prominent Bitcoiners have talked about hyper-Bitcoinization and living a Bitcoin standard, I've always been like, yeah, right, yeah, come on, man. Look, I can see why you think that, but I kind of never really expected it could happen. But but this was one of those conversations as we went through it and Nick explained things to me, a few things, you know, those little cogs in my head that turn a little bit slower than other people's started to come together and I started to realise, oh, hold on, actually, this a lot of this kind of makes sense. But more importantly, during this conversation is where I really came to think about the Lightning Network differently. I had been dismissive of the Lightning Network recently. I was kind of starting to think, well, I have no use for that. I'm not going to spend my Bitcoin. All I need is a solid store of value and a secure way to store it. 
But during the conversation, I started to realize that Bitcoin can eat up significant parts of the financial system and how important Lightning will be as part of that. So look, this is a great conversation and Nick runs through a number of other things with me. We talk about the history of money, government control of money, CBDCs, Bitcoin as layered money and other layer two solutions. And yeah, as I said, it did really make me think. So listen, I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. If you've got any questions and you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com and I do pretty much reply to anyone. Outside of that, go and check out Defiance, my other podcast. I know some of you have been. Part four of our series, Chaos, is out in a couple of days. We're looking at alternate realities. That's going to be a very interesting show. I know a lot of people really enjoyed the last show we put together, kind of looking at the history of breakdown in trusted government. That's all available at defiance.news. And as I said, if you want to reach out to me, it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, have a great week, and I will see you all soon. Nick, how are you, man? I'm doing well, Peter. Thanks for having me. Mate, good to see you. We've been a little bit excited about doing this show. Because uh, actually, when was the last time last time we saw each other was was that in LA when we did the last interview? It was. It was in the Open Node offices. Uh, I think it was in around uh, probably February, something around there. God, that feels like so long ago. So I know. Was it this year? Was it really this year? Maybe, maybe it was late last year I when think... uh, we could still see each other in person. God, man, what a different world we're in. Well, anyway, man, it's good to see you. So, come on, we've got to get into this. You've been writing a book. Tell That's me about right. it, man. Why did you so, decide to write a book? Because it's a it's, it's a massive thing to it's a massive undertaking. It is. The book is called Layered Money, and uh, it started. It really started. The idea for it really started uh, last year. Now uh, you know that I wrote uh, some articles about the Lightning Network in 2018, mm-hmm. and those articles gave me the sense that the Bitcoin world was looking for an explanation, a more detailed account of how Bitcoin might become the world reserve currency in the future. And um, aside from Bitcoin being an amazing technology and store of value, the details on how it gets there, aside from you know basically an enormous price rise, were, were not really there. And uh, so... The book started to take form when I started teaching at USC Business School as an adjunct professor of finance. And I was forced to come up with a curriculum for my students that explained the monetary system as well as the fixed income world or the bond world, which is where I come from. I'm formerly a U.S. Treasury trader for an asset manager here in Los Angeles. So... When I was developing this curriculum for my students, I realized that you know, the understanding of the monetary system needs to be explained before I can explain the fixed income market. But the understanding of the monetary system also needs to take place before you can understand Bitcoin, in my opinion. And so the the research that I did for my students to explain the monetary system set up a book to talk about where money has come from, where it is today, and where it's going in the future, specifically with Bitcoin heavily involved or even at the center of the future monetary system of our planet. And uh, so that's how the book took shape. And the word layer really came from the Lightning Network as we, you know, we understood that Lightning Network is a second layer of Bitcoin and uh, how we can transact. And I took that layered analogy 
and applied it to the entire monetary system. And that's where the title layered money comes from. Yeah, so I, yeah, first confession, I haven't read it in detail. I've uh, yeah, had lim- limited time with it, um, but I have skimmed through it. I have read some through some parts. But one thing that stood out for me, this it felt like a history of money. It felt like the history of money with a prediction for the kind of future of money. But that's what it felt like. That's exactly what I tried to do. Now, in order to correctly explain Bitcoin, I think that people do need to understand what is money and where did it come from. And so, yes, it's uh, it felt quite natural to spend, you know, half the book pretty much explaining the history of money from gold to gold coins to the first forms of paper money to when governments and central banks got involved in the 17th and 18th centuries in Amsterdam and England and uh, progressing to the Federal Reserve and then the, t- the decoupling from gold in uh, 1971 1973, depending on how you call it. And, uh, and then of course, Bitcoin today. And there's, uh, there's a lot that's happened in, you know, the last 800 years or so of monetary history. And I really felt that the, the Bitcoin world and the general public, um, could use a refresh on monetary history. That's really looked at through a, you know, a new terminology, a new lens that doesn't really read like an economics textbook. I didn't want to write something that you know, felt like, you know, where the vernacular was out of reach for people. I think uh, I think what it highlighted to me, and actually, not even just your book, but like this whole Bitcoin journey. I'll tell you something funny, actually. I don't, did you see my tweet earlier? Did you know today is the third anniversary of the first ever show I recorded? I just saw that before we came online. Congratulations. Yeah, well, that was in LA three years ago today. And uh, it's kind of funny because not only your book but even just being in the bitcoin space has kind of made me realize is that we don't teach people about finance really until certainly not unless they make it as a choice to go and be something they study uh, in university you know in school we teach business studies and economics but i mean i now look back at my whole economics degree and yeah some of the some of the macro stuff was 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 interesting but i now know i was being taught a completely different form of economics than I've learned from people like you and Stefan Levera says getting into the Bitcoin world. But we're very bad at teaching people about what money is. That's right. And I I attempted to get into that a little bit. Now, my book isn't necessarily about the human connection with money. I talk about it briefly in, in the way that, you know, money transitioned from basically a way of keeping track of favors with each other. You know, Nick Savo wrote, his uh, origins of money and really talked about this concept of reciprocal altruism and how reciprocal altruism is basically, you know, one favor for the next. And then we transitioned from that to physical objects in order so that we didn't have to remember all the favors in our brain. We could actually have a token and, and keep track of money like that. So my book isn't really about the, the human connection with money. It's more about when we decided that gold and silver were the best forms of physical money and transitioned from gold and silver, the metal or jewelry to gold and silver coins, where the measurement of money started to become standardized and exact, and we could use those units for accounting. That's when the story of layered money really starts. Uh, It starts with coins and how we went from coins to certificates that were good for a coin. And so that's the difference between 
the first layer of money and the second layer of money. The first layer of money is a gold coin, and the second layer of money is a gold certificate that promises to pay one gold coin. And so this analogy of first and second layer money, it's basically the idea of a balance sheet, assets and liabilities. The gold coin is on a banker's asset side of his balance sheet, and the gold certificate is on his or her liability side of the balance sheet. And so assets and liabilities, I've taken that side by side and made it first layer and second layer money. And I go down and talk about the third layer as well. And, um, and really the conclusion of the book or the reason I set up this analogy is to explain that Bitcoin, just like a gold coin, is a first layer money. It does not exist on the balance sheet as a liability of anybody. Now, we have, uh, you know, forms of second layer Bitcoin as well. Like if you own Bitcoin on an exchange, you don't own Bitcoin. You don't own first layer Bitcoin. You own a promise to pay Bitcoin. And that promise can be defaulted on. And it's not it's not for a first layer money. Now, people accept it. And actually, part of the book explains that money is naturally hierarchical. There's a natural willingness for people to accept a certificate that says, I'll pay you one gold coin. And that's why we have layered money. It's, it's not because we forced people to do that in the beginning. It's that people were willing to accept a piece of paper that said, I, I'll promise to pay you. That evolved into a whole monetary system that has multiple layers. And, you know, the fact that we started with coins has, you know, been forgotten. That's part of the you know, that's part of what you're talking about, how money isn't really taught. Finance isn't really taught, but it's not that it's not taught. It's that the origins are not taught. We are given formulas. We are given facts. We are given theory, but we're not taught how it started and how money went from a coin to a paper, or you know, layered system. And, and and or why? Because I think what's kind of interesting, flicking through the book, I feel like we're living in the dumbest time for money, but the most optimistic time for the improvement of money. Because I think we've all seen the problems, certainly since 2008 and what's happening with the pandemic. And, but we've also had a lens of other countries who've had you know, very difficult times. I mean, most recently, say, Lebanon. So we're obviously living in the most stupid time for money, which is almost entirely feels like it can be blamed on government but as i said the most optimistic time because we have bitcoin and 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 it's really starting to deliver but i think i think what we should do i think we should i think we should work our way through it because i think working our way through it is is the education but let's not give everything away because obviously we want people to buy the book for god's sake so yes please yes please buy the book if you're gonna listen to this you buy the you buy the book so firstly let's let's go back let's talk about the origins of of money tell me about the starting point for money where it all came from i know you did you you mentioned earlier with regards to like there were promises but obviously you know these promises and favors weren't things you could really stack up so where did the first forms of money come in right so I talk about the first gold coins. Those took place uh, in the 6th, 7th century BC. The first coin that I focus on is from the 13th century in Italy, uh, specifically Florence, called the Gold Florin. And that coin struck in the year 1252 was the first coin ever struck that lasted for as long as as it did without any changes to its weight or purity. So the gold florin, 
about a three and a half gram pure gold coin remained unchanged in its weight and purity for spanning four centuries. Okay, wow. Now, within a hundred years of the florin being very stable, people around Europe started to identify their savings in the unit of florin. So the, the florin was the first really international denomination. It's the, it was the first really international currency denomination in this uh, you know, so-called modern age. Now, the Roman Empire had, a, had some coins that circulated around the world, but you know, we're, uh, we start the story in the 13th century. Now, within 100 years and this denomination becoming standardized across Europe, bankers, merchant bankers started to issue promises to pay. They were called bills of exchange. They're basically promises to pay. And one side, at least one side of those transactions was, was always in Florin after a certain point. And so what we started to see was that promises to pay Florin were becoming standardized themselves in terms of people just accepting that, okay, this is a letter that has somebody's signature on it, but it's a promise to play Florin. So I'm going to accept it as money. And that was the first form of second layer money, these bills of exchange that they existed before the Florin was first struck, but they really started to coalesce around the Florin denomination at that time bills of exchange yeah go ahead well do we know why it was gold that was picked i mean i know the answer but like do we know why they picked gold so the reason why human beings picked gold and silver is i think a little bit beyond the scope of this book but what we find out is that over the last few thousand years that it was just consensus and so you know we had animal teeth that were used as money, uh, you know, skulls from, you know, certain rodents, uh, shells from the sea, um, even cattle, livestock, uh, iron tools. There were a lot of things that were used as money, but nothing attracted the global consensus for whatever properties that gold had, the durability, the divisibility, the, um, you know, just the beauty and uh, the scarcity of it, of, of it all, all of these characteristics, whatever humans decided that those were the reasons, consensus formed around gold long before Florence decided to strike the Florin in the 13th century. Um, you know, the Roman Empire used gold and silver coins. Ancient Greece used silver as well. So gold and silver were just, had already they had already reached a consensus of several thousand years by the time we got to uh, the pre-Renaissance. And in terms of the florin, was it was there only a single coin or were there different coins of different sizes with different values? So the gold florin itself was a single coin with a, with a, a specified weight and purity. Now, at the time, there were thousands of coins circulating throughout Europe. And this idea that uh, coin multiplicity uh, gave way to the trade of money changers, which are basically your foreign exchange brokers today. You know, they would change one coin into the other because the odds are if you were buying something from somebody, that person was not going to accept the same currency that you were holding in your in your pocket. 
And so you needed a money changer in between essentially every single transaction. And that's why, you know, finding coins that remained consistent and popular uh, helped money velocity, in, you know, in terms of it helped people change or spend money more quickly or have money change hands more quickly because everybody recognized the floor. And so it wasn't it wasn't the only coin at the time, far from it, but it was the leading coin for a, a few hundred years. And, and once it faded away, there were other coins that stepped in. But by that time, paper money had already really started to get involved in these the second layer and promises to pay. Yeah, I was going to think like I was thinking in terms of the Florin, if it's a single coin, but you wanted to buy or trade something that was less than a Florin, you know, significantly less, you know, what would people do about that? Was it was it right. only for certain purchase sizes? Yeah, so Florin, the Florin was used primarily for international commerce, salaries for uh, administrators in government. It was not used for, so the Florin itself was worth more than the average laborer's weekly wage. Right. And so exactly what you're saying, the common man wasn't using the Florin that much. Now, there is, uh, we do have uh, evidence that People, the common man, used the florin as a savings tool so that they could literally carry their life savings in their pocket, but it wasn't their daily currency. And actually, florin were florin coins were great collateral in that they could be pawned easily. You could post the coin to a pawn shop and take out silver coins of lesser denomination and use those on a daily basis. So the the coin was amazing collateral. And, uh, you know, there's parallels to Bitcoin today in terms of, you know, the properties as collateral as well. So, so what came what came after the florin then? How, how did we evolve into paper money? So bills of exchange, these these promises to pay, it evolved into. So these bills of exchange were think of them as static instruments. They weren't really like cash, although they were pieces of paper. You could you could really only use them when the date came due and your your gold was owed to you. And so it was just it was just a static piece of paper. In the 16th century in Antwerp, these static pieces of paper found a home in an exchange called the Antwerp Bourse that opened in 1531. And at the Antwerp Bourse, basically what you had were all these forms of paper money in one in one room and a bunch of merchant bankers that were ready to trade them with each other. So for the first time ever, these static promises became live forms of money, tradable forms of paper with time value, discounting, all these kind of bond or fixed income terms that we think about today in terms of the money market. The money market was born in the Antwerp Bourse in the 16th century. And that's how second layer money transitioned from a static promise to cash, really, like what we think of cash today, where you could trade paper with each other because you're all confident that the paper has value to the next person or that it can be sold. It has liquidity, right? Liquidity basically means that it can be sold today for cash. Well, in that day, cash was coin, right? And cash wasn't paper yet, but that in the Antwerp Burst, that's where cash kind of transitioned from coins to these bills. Uh, and so that's how we we got off the ground in terms of the money market. 
um, this idea that second layer money was money also, and that it had a market, it had a price. And uh, something interesting that is in the book is that the birth of the financial press happened in Antwerp at this time, not because of stocks or anything else. It was because of the commodities that were traded there in Antwerp, which attracted the bankers, right? And then prices of money themselves, interest rates, were first published in Antwerp in the 16th century. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, that is. Okay, so but these um, these bills, these, these promises to pay, who could anyone issue one or were they issued by banks? And what? how would you validate them? So think of it the same way today, Peter. If you had a bank that issued you a deposit, if you've heard of the bank and you've seen them advertised, you're more likely to trust it. And yeah. you haven't heard of the issuer, you're not, you're not likely to trust it. And so, yeah, I mean, especially at the birth of the money market, fleshing out who is to be trusted and who is to not be trusted is going to take, you know, decades, even centuries to flesh out who are these, uh, who are these issuers that are trustworthy, creditworthy and reliable. And uh, defaults happened all the time. And, uh, you know, people learned their learned their lessons. And, you know, and also this is exactly why people chose to hold first layer money instead of second layer money or first layer money as a hedge against their second layer money. So that if somebody defaulted on their paper, they weren't wiped out. And, you know, it reminds us of Bitcoin exchanges yeah. today and, and all that. There's so many parallels. Yeah, I was just thinking. This is not your keys, not your Bitcoin. This is that's right. Not your. That's exactly. It's exactly the same thing. It's just a promise, and and so promises in the in the olden days and promises today made by Bitcoin exchanges, they're not really different. They're they're liabilities on somebody's balance sheet, and they can be defaulted on. And was this all before government involvement? Was this all just uh, organically something that built up? That's right. Uh, It was organic, and uh, in the 17th century, at the beginning of the 17th century, the money market transitioned from Antwerp to Amsterdam as a result of the uh, Dutch revolt and basically the Dutch closing off Antwerp's access to uh, you know, the rest of the, uh, of the continent. And Amsterdam took over and the government got involved. And so the Bank of Amsterdam's fo- uh, founding in 1609 is the first time where the government, the state gets involved in the second layer issuance of money, where they realize that if they are the ones that issue second layer money to the public, they can actually use the currency to their own benefit. And that's what happened starting in Amsterdam and compounded with the founding of the Bank of England, which was done to finance a war against France. Okay, so I should know that being British, and I don't know that. So I didn't know that. So I know it now. So so the Bank of England was created for, for us to have a war with France. You've got to tell me that. That's fascinating. Yeah, so um, the Glorious Revolution, 1688, uh, when uh, England transitioned from one monarchy to the next, uh, it, it also coincided with uh, an ambition of the English people to be more represented in Parliament than they already were. So the Glorious Revolution was a, a little bit of a, I wouldn't even say a little bit, it was a shift in power, or sh- a balance, you know, a shift in the balance of power from away from the monarchy toward parliament to some degree. And along with this, the people of England and the parliament looked to what had happened in Amsterdam and the Bank of Amsterdam, and they they were jealous. They were like, this, this is a good deal. You know, we can start getting involved in creating money really for ourselves and use it to our own benefit. 
And so, yeah, when when England needed to rebuild their navy after uh, after they had lost a war, they started the Bank of England and issued bonds in order to borrow and, and rebuild their navy. And those bonds were purchased by this new Bank of England. And it was only it was only supposed to or the Bank of England uh, initially had temporary charters that lasted approximately a couple decades each. But they kept they kept getting renewed as uh, Parliament and the people found that, you know, the Bank of England was helping the country along and finally in the 19th century uh, became a permanent institution. But it took a while for Bank of England to become permanent and to get their monopoly on paper currency. Uh, private entities in England were still issuing uh, notes that circulated as currency during the, the 18th century. In, in terms of you know, thinking, yeah, I think of uh, the monarchy, uh, historically, I think of the monarchy in terms of um, when uh, America kicked us out and because our king tried to tax Americans to pay for our, I, I don't know which war, but um, I'm just going based on, I haven't seen Hamilton. Um <laughs> So how were the taxes paid in those days? Were they paid in gold? Were they paid in these notes? How, how did how did it all work? So the the tax laws of um, England, I'm not so sure about what what uh, how exactly they were collecting taxes, but the legal definition of pound sterling was a unit of silver until the year 1717 when it became a unit of silver and gold and gold kind of replaced silver as the currency of choice in England. And so the, the legal currency itself was pound sterling. So I'm assuming that taxes were collected in pound sterling, but pound sterling were promises to pay gold. And so again, the interaction of people and their governments was all on the second layer of money. Coins weren't used as a functioning government currency. The currency was the Bank of England note and 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 deposits okay is there a slight difference though between say silver and and the notes themselves did did silver even though it was a promise to pay gold did it still have a a more intrinsic value or was that just not relevant you're talking about sterling yeah the the pound sterling the the currency unit yeah yeah so pound sterling the word sterling means 92.5 percent silver purity and and the and so it actually comes from the pound sterling is a unit that was uh, you know a millennium old uh, but in 1717 when sir isaac newton as master of the mint changed the exchange rate between gold and silver what he had done essentially is he had incentivized the melting down and and exporting of all the silver in England because they were able to prof, uh, people were able to profit by uh, this arbitrage trade between gold and silver and during that process uh, silver left the monetary world of England and gold replaced it but in the end the pound sterling was uh, still like a bank issued currency so the Bank of England actually suspended convertibility to gold altogether uh, in the late 1700s for 20 years because they were in financial crisis. And if people had brought all the notes that the Bank of England had issued and demanded gold, they would have been wiped out. 
So they said, no more, you cannot have our gold. We'll, we are suspending convertibility between the second and the first layer of money. So this is a, you know one of the first major examples of the government's power once they get involved with the issuance of money is they can basically say that, oh, you all have our second layer of money. Well, you're, you're not going to get our first layer of money. You're not going to be able to change it, convert it to gold. And we can do that because we're the government. So maybe wow. that answers your question a little bit more. Yeah, it does. And it's fascinating because it just shows how it's i guess there's a long history of examples whereby as governments can control the money they can destroy its value because they have no incentive themselves to you know to run a, a balanced book essentially that's right yeah wow so when did when did the uk convert to the pound note when did the the actual tender of of the notes and coins that we're aware of today come in play. So those those notes started uh, upon the founding of the Bank of England in 1694. Okay. They started issuing notes. Those notes became the only currency allowed to circulate in England after 150 years or so, where, where pound notes were circulating in the public as well as other private notes. Now, the pound notes were promises to pay gold. The private notes were promises to pay gold, but eventually the Bank of England got their monopoly on notes uh, in the 19th century. Um, and was that a good thing at that time, to have a monopoly on the notes? Well, it, that goes to the larger question of should the government mandate that we can only use one type of currency or not? And so it's mm-hmm. the, it, it is the case today that with legal tender laws and, uh, you know, and a, and a very different, you know, an inability for us to transition, like as an American, you know, forget Bitcoin for a second, but let's say I wanted to hold a basket of dollars, euro, yen. Um, it's difficult for me to do that as an American citizen, just as it would be, you know, I think probably easier for you to own euro and pounds at the same time. But, um, you know, it's difficult for, for us to own different currencies. We are made, we are forced to use the currencies of our government. And how governments treat Bitcoin in the future will, will tell us a lot. Are they going to let us have the freedom of currency choice or are they not? And right now, uh, it's yet to be seen. And it'll differ from country to country. Yeah, it's quite interesting. It reminds me of this. I, I, I brought this up the other day. When I was in Argentina, I don't know if you've seen this, but during one of their uh, financial crises, it might have been La Carolita, um, some of the regions actually ended up creating their own notes and their own money. And I've seen some of the notes. They're quite, it's quite funny. Have you come across that? No, I haven't. But um, what you see is that people find a way to exchange with each other based on this idea of reciprocal altruism. Mm. All we need is something to agree upon that, that we agree that has value. And if we agree that it has value, we can use it as a way to exchange uh, with each other. And so it doesn't surprise me that people that live in countries with uh, very unstable currencies will find their own way to uh, transact with each other. And we see Bitcoin being used for that purpose in parts of Latin America today uh, because of the instability of those currencies. Yeah, I'm trying to find them because it's fascinating. I should send you it. But, but 
are there examples of places that have created notes and had a system of notes which hasn't had a convertibility to to something like gold? Oh, absolutely. So uh, there's one example in the United States, the greenback, which was used to finance the Civil War. The greenback didn't have any convertibility to, to, to gold. Right. And it circulated at the same time as gold certificates. This was in the late 1800s uh, before the Federal Reserve was created. So, you know, that's one major example where um, the convertibility to gold uh, didn't didn't matter. It still circulated as a currency and people, it you know, found it, people trusted it, that it had value or that it could be used and exchanged that to the next person. So um, and then today, of course, our uh, government issued currencies have no convertibility to anything. Next up, I talked to Nick more about Bitcoin, gold and CBDCs. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. All right, let's kick off with Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. And it is the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. And I know what you're thinking. Pete, you're just saying that because they're a sponsor. No, no, no. The reason I love Kraken, the reason I reached out to Kraken, I said, come on, Jesse, come and sponsor the show. is because they were my favorite exchange. Now, they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange and security is really important to me they also have best in class customer service so if you've got any issue whatever it is whoever you are wherever you are they are going to get that shit fixed for you and if you want to start trading bitcoin then they have every tool you could possibly need whatever your level of experience at kraken.com it could not be easier to sign up and start trading bitcoin they've also got a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy bitcoin on the go and with their margin trading, futures, and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com or download the app. That's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And last up today is BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. Do you know what? I need to stop saying that because it's the now of Bitcoin and financial services. Because with BlockFi right now, you can open up an interest account and you can start earning interest on your Bitcoin. I am. I've been a customer for a year. Do you know what I previously said? I earned a Bitcoin in interest. Actually, it's a Bitcoin in mixed interest and referrals because with BlockFi, you can get interest, but you can also get referrals. So that is worth checking out. Also, using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan and you can fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. And they have got so much stuff coming next year. I'm catching up with Zach soon. I will be letting you know as soon as I possibly can. If you are interested in checking out BlockFi, I recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. It's really interesting because one of these journeys you go on when you learn about Bitcoin is you start to question a lot of your uh, previous assumptions um, and now I understand why so many people are libertarian, especially in the world of Bitcoin, because they don't want government interfering in things because most things they interfere with are kind of they're kind of a bit shit with it. You know, some people may argue about certain things like they might argue about, well, we need government for roads or you know, border control or defense. And um, and, you know, I've never been a full anarchist. And quite interestingly, I've got um, Jonathan Haidt's book here, The Righteous Mind whereby he, he mentions that wherever uh, groups of people are formed, they've always destroyed individualists. So this guy, this natural thing that we always will have uh, uh, groups of people formed together, whether that's you know, small kind of groups or whether it becomes you know, under the wing of a government. But 
it does constantly make me think with regards to money it's the one thing we really should not have the government interfere with because it really affects every single one of us and as they have no incentive like you and i if you can't pay your mortgage you'll you'll lose your home <laughs> potentially you know and if you run out of money you can't find you know buy food for your family yeah you know, we have to run personally balanced books of our homes so we're incentivized to work hard and we're incentivized to be responsible with our money there is no incentive for government to ever do this with the ability to print money and this is a great thing about bitcoin is that as we now have currency competition as it starts to be this gravity that sucks money in i guess it i guess we will be running into two kind of options either governments will have to be more fiscally responsible or they'll try and ban bitcoin that's right and some governments will try to ban bitcoin but the beautiful thing about bitcoin is that it is really difficult to manipulate its price in every currency at the same time the supply of bitcoin itself and the delivery of physical bitcoin when you take possession of private keys and let's say you withdraw it from an exchange and transfer it into your own wallet what you are doing by taking possession of the bitcoin is you are enforcing the prices that you see on the exchange and those prices let's say bitcoin does go to half a million dollars that price is telling you that the dollar isn't worth as much as it was versus this new idea of currency now i'm not talking about going from 1 cent to half a million dollars but going from $20,000 to half a million dollars after bitcoin's already 12 years old is telling you something it's sending a message to the governments and to everybody that owns dollars as well that your currency is actually being devalued in terms of this other currency And so let's look at that other currency and figure out why it's so much more valued by the general public. And governments and central banks are able to manipulate the price of their currencies relative to other government currencies because they can just create and buy, create and buy. But you can't do that with Bitcoin. So with Bitcoin as this ultimate price truth or this ultimate Uh, arbitrage mechanism in the world of currencies um it's it's going to keep getting stronger and stronger and it's going to make make people understand why in fact this new currency has value not that it's more valuable than the dollar or less or any other currency but why does it have value and why does it keep going up in price relative to other currencies it's all about the price it's all about the price but i guess what what enforces this is scarcity and the absolute scarcity you know which makes it i guess it's one of the reasons that makes it even better than gold you know it's the scarcity and the predictability we all know you know it's kind of like two rules of the game we all know that there uh, it's scarce and we all know there'll only be 21 million and we know the issuance rate and because of that it's become it's almost become that game it's like like you need to get as much of this as you can as early as you can as people transition into a bitcoin economy that's right uh, bitcoin is like a uh, scarce land there god is not making any more of it uh there's only <laughs> yes they are um, they're just building they're just building it into the ocean aren't they 
Mm. Um, but yes, the scarcity, the scarcity, Peter, the supply maximum of 21 million and the schedule and the price all go hand in hand because the price reflects people's understanding of that scarcity. Right. So you, you call it scarcity and I'm calling it price, but we're actually talking about the same thing uh, because it's a scarcity property relative to other government currencies that drives the price. Because you can you can never get it back if you sell it right at that same price. The, 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 the central banks don't have that problem. They can always create more money. But if you sell your Bitcoin at a certain dollar price, there's no way you can like if you're a government and you own Bitcoin for some reason and you sell it, you can't just you can't just get that Bitcoin back without creating more of your own money to buy that Bitcoin. So you're inflating your the supply of your currency just to get back that that scarce Bitcoin. And so what you're describing in terms of scarcity, 21 million maximum supply, they all they they are the characteristics that drive the price and the and the really the qualitative difference between Bitcoin and everything else. And that includes altcoins, it includes stable coins, it includes everything except Bitcoin because Bitcoin not only does it have a, a maximum supply, but it has this tidal wave of energy and and mining power from around the world that secures that supply. And you know, when you compare hash power across networks, there's there's no competition. It's not even close. There is nothing else like Bitcoin. Right. So it comes back to that point is that the I think it was um VJ, VJ Boyapati said is that we we eventually always convert to the best form of money and the reason bitcoin is performing so well especially against let's say compare it to gold right now i mean it's obviously performing uh, very well against the dollar but it's performing very well against gold right now we saw a small boost in gold earlier this year but bitcoin is performing really well because there are enough people who right now want access to bitcoin who believe it is superior to gold so actually in some ways bitcoin is actually if you think about it it's actually priced quite cheap at the moment because very few people understand this. Well, it's actually incredibly cheap when you think about Bitcoin as uh, potentially the digital gold of the future, because gold's total market value in form of coins, bullion and jewelry around the world is about $10 trillion. Bitcoin isn't even at one half of $1 trillion. So. It, there is a 20x in there in Bitcoin's future if it does continue on its current path and people continue to view it as digital gold. And people like myself that are going to publish books that make the case that Bitcoin is digital gold, um, I'm not the first one to do it and I won't be the last one to do it. it we don't use this analogy lightly. I wrote you know, five chapters about why gold was the way it is just so that I can set up calling Bitcoin digital gold and it makes a little bit more sense to people. And so it's not an analogy that people just like pick out of nowhere. It is real. And so using Bitcoin's market capitalization versus golds, I think is a fair way to assess. I know that, um, you, you know, you've had the Winklevoss brothers on, mm -hmm. they've made similar uh, comments. I'm not the first one to say this, that, you know, gold's market size is a legitimate target for Bitcoin. And it puts Bitcoin around half a million dollars 
if you multiply 20 million coins by half a million dollars, uh, you get up to $10 trillion. And so that's, that's where that half a million dollar number comes from. I don't think that it's unreasonable. Uh, we don't know when it's going to happen. But in terms of getting there, I think it's something that if Bitcoin continues on its current trajectory, uh, we'll see it. We'll see it trading on par with gold. But I think if it gets that far, I think it actually shoots beyond it. It shoots beyond it, and I'll tell you why. Because just like an experience of my my own, I've talked about this a couple of times on the pod. As a coronavirus thing hit, I started just to make a few kind of plans for kind of disaster scenarios, and I just tried to kind of like wonder all the scenarios I need to be prepared for. And Bitcoin was one in terms of protecting my money. Uh, I knew there was going to be a massive amount of government borrowing. I also planned just to have some cash in, in the house, just a small amount that's uh, hidden away that if, you know, for some reason or other, the banks are closed, you can't get to the banks, there's a cash problem, I had some cash. And I also thought, I just want to have some gold too. I just want to have a bit of gold. And the reason I want to have a bit of gold is that whilst I am uh, have a lot of conviction buying Bitcoin, it isn't 100%. It's a... 95%, say whatever. So I just thought I wanted to have a bit of gold. So I looked into buying gold, and there were a couple of things that really stuck out. So firstly, some people said, well, do you want to get an ETF or do you want the physical gold? And I thought, well, if I'm buying this as an alternative to Bitcoin, my conviction is around the possession. Therefore, I need to possess it like I can possess Bitcoin. You want first layer gold. I want first layer <laughs> gold. Absolutely. I, I want a first layer gold. But then the secondary point was, Somebody said to me, he said, what are you going to do when you want to sell it? I was like, well, I'm assuming someone wants to buy it from me. He said, yeah, but have a think about right now. If you want to sell some Bitcoin, what do you do? And I was like, I just send some to an exchange and I sell it. He said, well, you've got instant liquidity. With gold, you haven't. And that's, he said, you look around, all the people you know, look at all the people you know who own gold and all the people you own Bitcoin, which one's in growth? It's like, have you got friends trying to buy gold? And I was like, no, have you got friends trying to buy Bitcoin? I was like, yeah, you're right. So actually, I just skipped the, the gold phase and I, I bought more Bitcoin. And that to me was like the message that Bitcoin does so much more. It's so much more accessible. It's so much more easier to use. Basically, all those things Vijay Boyapati talks about in his bullish case for Bitcoin, they're all true. And it suddenly becomes very clear that it's a much better form of money that can do much more. So I think... If you're heading towards the gold, I think you I think you end up actually uh, uh, crushing through it because so many people, so many more people will have an interest in owning Bitcoin than they will do in owning gold. I, I really agree with that. And, you know, my book doesn't speculate beyond um, approaching gold in terms of the market value, but it does speculate beyond the current monetary system and to a world where central banks not only have to own Bitcoin, but have to have their own Bitcoin trading desks in order to make sure that their currency's value relative to Bitcoin doesn't get out of hand. And so, uh, again, Bitcoin being this arbitrage mechanism for, for the currency world, uh, I think that you know central banks will have to manage the price of Bitcoin versus their currency just to, uh, just to maintain a stable value relative to Bitcoin. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, Bitcoin is definitely, you know, the next iteration of money and it does obsolete gold in a lot of ways, but it is hard to 
just immediately dismiss several thousand years of monetary history. And so I'm not going to be the one to do that and say gold is trash and Bitcoin is the only thing going forward. But, uh, you know, it the writing is on the wall that, you know, the properties of Bitcoin exceed gold when it comes to, you know, here we are in the year 2020. There's just no doubt about it. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting point you've just made in terms of central <clears throat> banks having to manage their currency in, in relation to Bitcoin. And Bitcoin will be, I guess, will become the ultimate measure of monetary policy responsibility. That's right. It rises to the first layer of money across the entire spectrum yeah. of all monetary assets in the world. And that happens with a progression from the traditional rails to more of a cryptocurrency type of rail at the central bank level. So that's where we see central bank digital currencies coming in. And we don't know what they'll look like yet, but in my book, I do speculate and make some, you know, uh, light recommendations to central banks that want their central bank digital currencies to have value in the market and international demand, even potentially uh, a way to, you know, a way for them to, you know, claw back some of this some of this momentum that they've lost because of Bitcoin. You know, people have lost their belief in central bank currencies starting around this 2007 to 2009 financial crisis, right when Bitcoin was invented. And so, you know, the decay in trust in central banks, they'll have to claw, they will try to claw some of that back with these digital currencies. And my book outlines uh, how I see CBDCs playing out, what types of digital currencies these central banks will issue and um, how they will interact with Bitcoin in the future. Okay, I'm going to want to come back to I'm going to want to come back to CBDCs because I've got a few things I want to ask you about those. I just want to keep on this. It's really interesting. I, sometimes I do interviews and during it, like my brain starts ticking over slowly and I start to have like these light bulb moments. But what's really interesting in terms of this, so if we're talking about you know, Bitcoin being an ultimate measure of central bank monetary policy and and with Bitcoin being you know relatively easy to send between people, certainly on the base base layer, I, I, yeah, I know we have time, you know, it can take a bit of time sometimes, but hopefully with this this okay, so this is this is what makes the second layer so important. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. Sorry, my brain's ticking over. But if that's so important, it actually reminds me of something Safety said to me once. Um, I said to him, what's the biggest risk to Bitcoin? And he said, responsible central bank monetary policy. Yeah. If you had good money. And this then becomes a real test for governments. And it takes me back to that point I just said a moment ago, that Bitcoin is a real threat to this model whereby they can print and create money themselves. And if people start to realize that, if this kind of virus spreads, then more and more people will be going into Bitcoin. So therefore, it does come back to that point whereby they will have a choice either to improve their monetary policy, which may mean that government finally has to start reducing in size and be more responsible. Yeah, my brain, my brain's like, my brain's ticking over now. Well, think realizing the second about impacts. it like this. Here's an example. So let's say a country, unnamed country, decides to issue a central bank digital currency. And they do so by issuing it on a distributed ledger that, let's say, you and I can download. So we could view the supply. You know, we can't mine transactions. It's not built like that. It's just us for us to view or audit. 
But we can because we have this software and we can see that this central bank has issued X number of uh, units of currency and they increase their supply by 1% a year, you know, similar to gold, let's say. And they do that for 10 years. And meanwhile, everybody that has the free software can, can see this in real time. Do you think that that country's currency is going to attract value and demand relative to another one that uh, we also have their distributed ledger software and we can see that they're creating 50% growth a year in their currency? So this auditable currency idea that comes from Bitcoin, I do believe that we will see some central banks progress toward that type of technology exactly to claw back that trust that they have lost because of how much money they've created over the last decade or two or even century or two. It's a really it's interesting possible. thing. It, it, it's really increasing. <clears throat> even this conversation alone is increasing my conviction. So I'd got to the point recently where I didn't like holding pounds. So I, you know, especially with my business, uh, my business holds a balance sheet. So what I started to do is I, I started to look at my like long-term cash flow projections any money that's not required over the next year goes into Bitcoin. The reason being is that I can't do it all right now. I can't go Bitcoin only because, you know, we go up to 18,000, then we crash back down to 15,000. I might have bills to pay and I could lose 20%. But what I can do is I do have this longer term conviction. So anything I don't need over the next year just goes into Bitcoin and sits there because I have that kind of like long term belief that that will accrue value. The volatility is really one of the few downsides I have with Bitcoin right now. Look, I understand it. You can't go from a penny to 20,000 to half a million per coin without some volatility. I, I fully understand that. But I, as an individual, have to manage that process. I have my conviction, but I have to manage that process. I guess there'll come a time where Bitcoin will be seen less volatile it will be considered the, the other currencies are volatile. Now, people make that point, and I think it's a bit of a joke. You know, you know, the dollar crashed 20% today. But actually, as it becomes, I guess the volatility becomes less relevant if we start transacting in Bitcoin, and Bitcoin becomes the unit of account. Yeah, the, re the way I think about volatility is, just like you said, it can't go from one cent to half a million without some enormous gyrations uh, across you know along the way but i'm not the one who come up with, came up with this somebody else said this i can't remember who that the volatility scares away enough people for bitcoin to reach its maturity level where the people that are scared of the volatility they won't participate nice because it's not the consensus yet bitcoin is still like the underground even though for us it's the mainstream it's not, it's not yet. And it, it is still the underground. And so it will remain there for the entire time where its volatility is, um, you know, face ripping. Uh, you know, by the time that this interview airs, we could be at 25K or 12K. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, it, that's just the nature of Bitcoin. And it, I mean, there's no way Bitcoin settles down in volatility anytime in the next few years. It can't on its way to becoming a worldwide monetary asset. There's no way, and there's not enough Bitcoin. So here's a, a more nuanced thing 
something that I look at. So I, as a former bond trader, I'm always looking at charts and price action as something that I always do. And I study the Bitcoin price action. And I can see when you see these candles that we have a $1,000 sell-off in eight minutes or a $200 move in nine seconds, those types of things show us from a price action perspective that the buyers and sellers are way apart on price today. Any large size moves the price by $1,000, any large trade that goes through. So those huge moves, those huge candles, 15-minute candles, or even the daily candles, they're usually from one trade wow. that triggers a bunch of stop losses, right? It's the, it's, but it's one buy or one sell that cascades through the rest of the orders. And so if we're still in a state where one enormous trade can move the market by $1,000, that's just not going to change anytime soon. No. So, you know, volatility as a critique of Bitcoin, it, I think it's been answered in terms of now we're in our third, we're in our third post having bull market, third consecutive, three out of three. It's like, it's starting to become clear. It's starting to become more obvious that it does follow the seasonality. It does have an insane amount of volatility and we will have 75% drawdowns when we get to the next peak of the hype cycle. And so I just think it'll naturally continue like that. Okay. I want to talk, you know, I'm going to talk to you about the current hype cycle. One other thing I wanted to talk about is relating to this point. And then I just wanted to talk about lightning is these um, secondary consequences of the having this very, very good money. And, and, People talk about fiat money and fiat, you know, and, and align it to other things. But one of the, one of the things that's come out of another just experience of becoming involved in Bitcoin is that historically, my own personal monetary policy was terrible. Right, I wasn't very good at saving. I just kind of like just spent my money each month and never really planned for the future. I was t honestly, Nick, I was terrible until I got into Bitcoin. And even when I first got into Bitcoin. I was terrible with Bitcoin. I, I own way less Bitcoin than I did at my peak. But I had my peak. I had my own volatility. I had my spike and how much I got. And then I had my massive drawdown when I screwed up. But I've since I've hit that bottom, I've only ever gone up. I've only ever increased my Bitcoin stack. I give bits away sometimes. I spend li little bits here. But generally speaking, month on month, because I actually track it. I track how much I've accumulated each month. I'm very, very conscious of doing that, which is making me more responsible myself in my own personal monetary policy, my own spending policy. But it's going to, I, I know what the influence is going to be is that it's going to make me consider, be a bit more considerate about the things I buy. You know, if I buy a car, do I need, do I need a Range Rover or do, will I be okay with like a Golf? Like, what is the consequence of that? And those secondary consequences, I think, are, are going to drastically change the economy for people i think we're going to become more productive but in a different way i i agree with that and i do point out that in the 1920s in the united states it's a period called the roaring 20s before mm -hmm. the great crash of 1929 and the ensuing great depression that consumer consumerism in the united states and you know it would trickle to the rest of the world consumerism had its origins during that decade. And 
the consumerism and the money supply expansion on, let's say, the third layer of money was so excessive um, and caused a and caused such a large financial crisis that we can actually trace a lot of the problems and even the delinking of the dollar to gold to the birth of that consumerism era in the 20s. So you bring up something important about the future where maybe Bitcoin reverses a little bit of the consumerism culture. It makes savings cooler. It makes saving more desirable. And, you know, I love Bitcoin as a savings technology. I love that meme. I love that. It's one of my favorites because there is no such thing as a savings technology in this world uh, until Bitcoin. It, it really is. a It's a great analogy. And so, yeah, I think Bitcoin as a savings technology drives maybe some of that anti-consumerism uh, over over a, a time horizon, but not something that I philosophically uh, philosophically you know dive into. Right. So I just want to I want to move on to Lightning now. So I I've had my kind of like period recently of just kind of like not caring about Lightning. Just I don't care. I don't need it. I don't use it. And again, this interview is another one of those ones where I've kind of like, I've realized how important actually Lightning is, but it's not important right now. We don't, you know, it's important for the future. You know, when people start talking about how much Lightning is used now, I've realized it doesn't really matter right now. What matters is that the technology improves, becomes easier to use, etc. Because essentially Lightning, they're basically kind of like the notes, right? Kind of like the notes. Whereas gold is your your base layer, the the lightning is kind of like the notes, but they're so much better than the traditional notes that you were talking about previously. Right, they're so much better because they don't have that counterparty risk. Mm. It's not an an issued liability of somebody. It's still your Bitcoin. It's just uh, suspended in these payment channels. Um, and so, uh, you know, with all due respect to the whole Lightning Network world. Um, I do agree with you that Lightning doesn't matter that much yet from this uh, world reserve currency path, but it matters so much, Peter, because of the hashed time lock contracts that make up the Lightning Network. These contracts and what they started as and what they're evolving to prove to us that Bitcoin is not just this static asset, but it's it's an entire monetary and financial system in embedded into the network protocol. And so what Lightning Network shows us is that standardized financial contracts within Bitcoin and, and programmed into Bitcoin have the potential to let us transact Bitcoin in a zillion different ways relative to send and receive. Bitcoin started as send and receive, but it's way more than that today. And Lightning Network is so exciting because it transforms Bitcoin uh, from this static, you know, again, to use that same static and dynamic analogy, Lightning Network makes Bitcoin dynamic because you can instantly transact it. You could even stream it. You can use it for micropayments. Those are all things that you can't do on the base layer of Bitcoin. And so... Um, I don't really view Lightning Network as a form of notes. Um, I, I 
think of it more as a little bit of a delayed settle on your Bitcoin so that you can use it at light speed. Um, and, and, you know, hence, hence lightning. Okay. Interesting. Okay. I'm, uh, that's really, this whole interview has completely changed my view on lightning. I get it now. I, you know, cause when you hear people saying no one's really using lightning, I was kind of like, well, yeah, you're kind of right. But actually it, it doesn't matter, but when it matters, it will be ready. You know, as that's we right. move, I guess, especially if Bitcoin becomes a unit of account, lightning becomes so much more important. That's right. It, 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 lightning is lightning is just part of Bitcoin's improvement. It's the same story, really. It's hard. People in in the Bitcoin world, we think about lightning as separate because it's its own protocol. It's a second layer. It doesn't, you know, if you're a Bitcoin user, you don't have to have anything to do with lightning to use Bitcoin. So that's why we kind of think of it as this segregated world. But really, it's about the contracts. It's about these HTLCs. It's about what they can do for Bitcoin. And keep in mind something in the book that I won't go into much right now, but hash, hash time lock contracts are going to be used by central banks. They're going to be used by banks that issue stable coins for atomic swaps. Atomic swaps using hash time lock contracts will be the future of the monetary world. And those hash time lock contracts, guess where they came from? The Lightning Network. And, and so the Lightning Network is so foundational to what will come, how we can customize financial contracts on these um, you know, distributed ledgers or Bitcoin's blockchain. What do you think about other second layer technologies, things like Liquid then? And, and do, you, do you envisage a scenario where maybe we will have, I don't know, other second layers whereby they offer certain benefits but there is a different value different given to the denomination of the coin? Yeah, think of it in a traditional analogy, okay? All the forms of dollars that you can hold. You can have cash in your hand, uh, which is a second layer money in my, in my uh, context. You can have bank deposits, which is a third layer money. You can have money suspended in your Venmo account, which would technically be a fourth layer money mm -hmm. because it's connected to your bank account, to your bank deposits. And between cash, bank deposits, and Venmo, and let's say even a new, uh, let's say an Amazon coin, okay? So you have Amazon coin, you have bank deposits, you have your Venmo, and you have cash. You have four different ways to hold dollars. All four of those issuers are going to have different incentives for you to use their money, right? The bank will issue you or will pay you an interest rate. Right? And that's why you would keep the money in the bank versus cash. Venmo gives you the advantage of being able to send it to your friend in one second. That's an advantage over a bank deposit. The Amazon coin might give you discounts on Amazon, which gives you an advantage over your Venmo coin. And so each and every form of money can have their own benefit and it can have their own detractors. And that's why people choose one form of money or the other. If you are fine in like keeping all your money in your PayPal account, you might have a benefit that accrues to you because PayPal will issue you a reward or issue you interest rate. Um, um, and, and if you, that's not interesting to you, you can t keep a stack of paper in your, your bedside drawer. So I uh, maybe I hopefully I answered your question there. No, you did. 
God, it's so fascinating. Okay, I just want to switch gears a bit. I do want to talk about CBDCs. You mentioned them earlier. I've done one show on it so far with Rao Powell, um, and I came out of out of it thinking this is just a horrible dystopian nightmare. The the thing mm-hmm. that I dislike most about um, CBDCs, well, it's a couple of things. Firstly, you never take possession of the money. That's the thing that really freaked me out because unlike Bitcoin, ultimately they can censor, steal, inflate, do whatever they want to that coin. To me, it's just a worse form of, because we have digital money now, right? I mean, yes, we have notes and such, but really we're all operating digitally and we're just moving numbers around in in, uh, spreadsheets. But but this is a version whereby, because you can't have the cash version, it can be taken from you. And one of the things that, like, you know, I had to pay a fine today, a speeding fine, bastards. And actually, <laughs> I actually had to pay slightly more because I forgot to pay it. I got a uh, letter through the post. So that was, like, quite frustrating. But those types of fines could just be automatically taken from you, automatically deducted. And that really quite freaked me out. So the future of money for me really is kind of, it's, I kind of think of it as CBDCs versus Bitcoin. They can work in unison, but depending on how nefarious the government or central bank is, they can be, they could be at war with each other. Yeah. So I do think that CBDCs present uh, a lot of problems, surveillance being one, seizure being another, um, negative interest rates being, you know, another one that you know, I think it's more of a monetary policy discussion, but it can happen. You could also have helicopter money. Um, I'm talking to people in central bank research departments that are convinced that CBDCs are the best way just to give people money. Yeah. So, so um, you know, in, in terms of fiscal stimulus and kind of uh, stepping over the government or, you know, taking charge away from the government in terms of that distribution of uh, handouts. But in the future, if you have freedom of choice between your central bank's digital currency or a bank coin, which might have a higher interest rate than your CBDC, and then you have Bitcoin and any other cryptocurrency or digital asset, if you have choice, then you don't have to keep your money in an account with a central bank that is liable to just have the money taken away from you if you have a speeding ticket. So you can you can you could liquidate that account. The interesting thing about that then is will they allow CBDC pounds to be used to buy Bitcoin with? And none of that none of those things are are things that we know yet. Yeah. And we are still very early. Uh, the European Central Bank just put out a, a, a huge study about you know what they're planning to do. And really, the whole thing is filled with questions to themselves. Yeah. How is this going to affect the banking industry? How are we going to give money to people? Are we going to completely stop the issuance of paper notes or not? Uh, will CBDCs and paper notes exist side by side with each other or will CBDCs or plate notes altogether? We don't know any of these things yet. I do believe that different central banks will have different rules 
And we might see some central banks completely have a closed loop in terms of their central bank digital currencies where you can only use it in certain circumstances. I do believe that China's uh, DCEP, their digital currency project, will um, resemble something of a, a retail-facing central bank digital currency that is, you know, very closed off. Won't be able to, you know, be owned by foreigners. It won't. You won't be able to, um, you know, let's necessarily send them to Bitcoin exchanges in China. Um, they'll be, you know, very restricted. And then other central banks, I do will, be, I do believe will make an effort to have their digital currencies be freely traded uh, and used as, you know, proper money, um, you know, with a with more of a freedom perspective. Now, I'm not saying that, all, you know, there will be central banks that won't, you know, surveil you or limit you from transacting or even just monitor for criminal activity. All that stuff will take place um, just as they, you know, currently do with banks and credit cards and just tracking everything. Interestingly, I mean, firstly, I don't know if they'll be able to technically do it. They'll probably fuck it up. But uh, interestingly, in some way, CBDCs might might end up teaching people how to use Bitcoin and why they need Bitcoin um, in terms of getting people to kind of transact with a digital currency. I, I think that that's a fair assumption. You know, once they see that uh, how a digital wallet works on their smartphone, that, um, you know, this idea of... Uh, private keys and receive addresses is very easy to use. You know, the downfalls of it are, you know, this this privacy invasion or potentially negative interest rates or asset seizure um, might drive them to figure out how do I get out of this coin mm. and into a better one. And if you can't, I guess if they don't allow you to buy Bitcoin with a CBDC, it might create put a premium on Bitcoin which is uh, something to think about. All right, well, listen, look, Nick, this has been fascinating. This is, I think, in some ways, it's probably probably the most important interview I've done this year in terms of what it's done for me. Like, occasionally I'll do one and I leave it with a few, like, like a whoa moment. I've just got to go and go, whoa, that's just changed everything. Fuck, I need more Bitcoin. I better sell my house. <laughs> but um, what I would just want to close out on is just, because we haven't spoken properly for a while. We've been talking over Twitter and such, but, like, how are you taken in this year? Because I expected a bull market to happen at some point. But the things that have led into the bull market, Michael Saylor coming in and just wiping the floor with Bitcoin and what he's done in terms of his conviction, what we've had in terms of uh, Square putting money in. But even in the last few weeks, we've had Drucker Miller. Is it Drucker Miller, his name? Yeah, the billionaire Stanley Drucker Miller. Yeah, we had mm -hmm. Paul Tudor Jones. Yesterday, well, a couple of days ago, uh, uh, Ray Dalio admitting he might even be wrong. Nuriel Rabini saying, you know, it might be a store of value. I mean, we'll probably get Peter Schiff at some point. Um, <laughs> we've had this Mexican guy come out, said he's got 10% of his liquid assets in Bitcoin. Like, the momentum is there. And, it's, and the momentum is there with, like, a broad range of people from billionaires to companies to individuals. It's really fascinating, and it's and it's happening even without the FOMO yet. Right. Well, you know, to answer your uh, question, Peter, Bitcoin's time has arrived. Uh, I think that that wasn't the case in 2017, but post-pandemic and what's going on with central banks and just trust in currency and 
you know, let's be honest, just like the Zoom movement, the internet uh, work from home uh, and, you know, the internet central role in everything. I do believe that what is happening this year is that people are realizing that Bitcoin is the same thing as the internet in terms of what it'll do to our planet, change it, (laughs) end industries and start new ones. People are realizing that this year and next year, but, but, you know, smart investors are realizing it this year and corporations, PayPal, you know, coming in is enormous. And, Mm -hmm. you know, PayPal didn't make that decision this year. They've been doing R&D for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. Fidelity, when they launched their product, had been mining for several years. So Bitcoin's time is now. And people that are in denial about Bitcoin's role in the future are literally making the same mistake that people that denied the Internet's role were doing in the late 90s. It's just becoming clear to the smartest investors in the room that denying Bitcoin is like denying the internet 20 years ago, and it's a mistake, and you're going to get left in the dust. And uh, I think that's what we're seeing, and uh, to the moon. What a way to end it. That's going to be, uh, we put these little intros into the into the, into the music into the start of the show. You killed it with that one. All right, listen, we're recording this before the book's coming out, officially, but when it is out, everyone should go and fucking buy it. And um, can we give any kind of details? And do you know any, you know, and obviously we're speaking in advance, but where will people be able to buy it? Sure. So the book will be published in January. Okay. Thinking uh, sometime in late January. Uh, It will be available on Amazon worldwide um, and Kindle. So hopefully that gives uh, the majority of the world the opportunity to buy. But it will also be available on other book distributors and um, the, but I'm just saying Amazon because I think it's where people will find it first. Um, will there be a but, paperback? Uh, there will be a paperback. There will be a hardcover version, and there will be a Kindle version. So those are all okay. um, we're working on. All of those right now. They will be published in January, and will be available for sale on Amazon in January. Uh, I'm hoping to get a pre-order Kindle page up on Amazon before Christmas. So I'll be working on that. I'll tweet it out when it's out there. But basically, search for Layered Money on Amazon uh, toward the end of this year and in the beginning of next year. Um, please buy the book and let me know what you think of it. I think that this Layered Money terminology has the potential to ch- shift people's understanding of Bitcoin and money as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm I'm really excited for people to read it. I've been working all year on the book and uh, just can't wait to get it out. And thank you, know you Peter, for having me on. Dude, anytime. I love talking to you. Um, do you know what it's going to retail at? I don't yet, but it'll be in the range of uh, your, your typical uh, current events uh, type of hardcovers. Well, listen, put me down for like 10, 20 copies. I'll give a bunch away. Um, big fan of what you're doing i loved your previous it was your previous work and your previous writing with regards to lightning is why i reached out to you and it's why we ended up meeting up the first time but this has blown my mind i've absolutely loved this interview um yeah brilliant like i wish you the best and anything i can do you're always welcome on the show um you want me to tweet out about the book anything you just let me know i'll uh, throw my full support behind it nick i really appreciate that peter and i look forward to coming back on to promoting the book in 2021 and uh, you take care. And you, man. Take care, brother. All right. What do you think of that one? Did you enjoy that one with Nick? 
listen, look, every now and again during an interview, a few things just start to click for me and it all kind of makes sense. And this was definitely one of those conversations. I keep saying I couldn't be more excited for Bitcoin over the next couple of years, but I'm also starting to think about how if Bitcoin does continue to grow, maybe the real fight is ahead. Now, Nick's book, Layered Money, will be out early next year, so make sure you pick up a copy. It's 100% worth a read. I've got an advanced copy. It is a bit of a mind-blowing book. It definitely sits alongside the Bitcoin standard. Now, if you want to reach out to me, you want to get in touch, any feedback, any questions, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com, and I do pretty much reply to anyone. And also, a big thanks to anyone who supports the show. Anything you do, I've been getting a lot of reviews on iTunes recently because I've been asking you to. So if you have two minutes and you do like the show, can you head over to iTunes and leave me a review? Hopefully, you think it's worth five stars. Perhaps you don't. Perhaps you think it's worth one star. Perhaps you think my show is shit. Well, I hope not. But if you do, either way, please go and leave me a review there. Um, outside of that, go and check out my other show, Defiance. Part 4 of Chaos is out on Thursday. We're going to be looking at alternate realities. So hopefully, you're enjoying that. Um, that's available at defiance.news. Um, outside of that, have a great week, and I will see you all soon.